we have given you the theme for this book. We also gave you a, a word, just to digress, that this is the, starts with an M, very good, the macro, hopefully we won't bring that word up again, but just, uh, just to do that, does anybody, anybody by chance recall the theme that we have talked about here for the theme of the book of Galatians? That's right. Commit to Christ, not law of Moses, or we will incur what? Division and... Speak with confidence, folks. Have you noticed, does Paul speak with confidence here? He do. He do. All right. He do. Of course, he's, uh, he's not us, is he? All right. I'll remind you of uh, something here. I quote from Bill Witherington since I'm reminded how much you like quotes. <laughs> All of Galatians is a unified rhetorical piece meant to head off the Galatians' march towards having themselves circumcised and submitting to the Mosaic law and covenant. And by contrast, to aid them to walk in the Spirit and according to grace, according to the gospel Paul first preached in Galatia. All right, so last, wor- uh, last week we covered the first, uh, I think it's uh, five verses, that's right. And uh, we, we broke it down for uh, simplicity's sake. Or maybe it was just to confuse you or to make me try to look like I knew something. And we said that we were looking at the, or maybe it was just to impress my friend Anne. We were looking at the soul of the gospel. Anybody by chance? Let's see. uh, I know somebody keeps notes. The singularity of the gospel. The source of the gospel. And so if we were to say that last week, was a declaration of the gospel and pretend like we're making you go back to school. Okay. Yeah, I know you don't mean that, but we'll go with it anyway. We could say this week is a discussion about the distortion of the gospel. All right? And uh, we can see how this is happening. I want to, however, remind you that Paul's gospel is a gospel of grace. Can you say grace with me? Grace. All right. Somebody told me, uh, well, we were having our meeting, and, uh, and uh, Steve said, boy, you did a great job. I said, well, if I didn't do a great job last week, uh, we're all in big trouble, because last week was all about grace. And if the teacher can't get up and talk well about grace, well, he doesn't need to be teaching in the church. Can I get an Amen. Grace, well, you weren't real excited about that. But if, 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 we can't, if we can't get grace across, if we can't discuss grace, we've got no business being in this business, all right? And I'm reminded of what Jesus said in John 15, 5, apart from me, you can do Nothing. what? Nothing. Nothing. And, you know, Abraham was a great man, but it was because of grace, Isaac was a great man, but only because of 
grace. Jacob was a great man, but only because of grace. I do recall also earlier in the book of Genesis that a man by the name of Noah found Grace. grace in the eyes of the Lord. And so as we move forward, we've got to remember that this is a gospel of grace. I was uh, giving Nicholas uh, my congratulations, and I'm trying to... He's right there somewhere. And uh, I was giving him my congratulations, and I was saying to him, now, when you fail... He said, what? Why are you being a pessimist? I said, no, because you're going to fail, like the rest of us fail all the time. And that's why we are Christians. Can I get a hallelujah? hallelujah? That's why we're Christians. Because in Christ, we are perfect and we inherit his perfection, and we are being conformed to the image of his Son. But that which is good in me is because of Christ Jesus. So this is a gospel of grace. And Paul's frustration here that we're about to see, and his passion that we're about to see, is because somebody is distorting or distorting this gospel of grace. And he has zero patience for that. Me, you, and Paul have uh, issues with that. Or you, Paul, and I. Or this English language thing keeps changing. And I'm stuck on the hillbilly version, so I'm good with it. Uh, But Paul has zero patience for that. It is of grace. It is all of grace. It is in him, through him, and by him. Nothing else. It's all of grace. And so wherever we go in this discussion of Uh, the, The letter to the Galatians, whatever Paul is saying, it's all building on this foundation. Commit to Christ. Can I give you a synonym for the word commit? Faith. Faith. Pour it all on Christ. Pour it all in Christ. Everywhere you're going, everything you're doing, everything you're trying to do. Whether you're a middle-aged man going through a a middle-aged crisis, just remember it's all of Christ. Whether you're a young person struggling with self-esteem and you you think your nose is too big or your teeth aren't just right or you're struggling with something else, remember, commit to Christ. It's all of Christ. Go like this right here so I can hear those Christmas bells ring. All right, Galatians 1, 6 through 10. Nice and loud, if you would, uh, Brother Matthew. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting Him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. Thank you, sir. Now, we, we, we've, I've tried to digress um, uh, before. Uh, And I've tried to say there are certain things that the first century understood. The letter shows up. You have this rhetorist who is presenting this as a speech to the people. They got it right off the bat. You and I, we don't got it. See my hillbilly? 
we don't get it. And so with that, I've, I've tried to convince you that what they got was this idea of, uh, of being a, a rhetorical or, or he was speaking in terms of rhetoric. Do you remember the type of rhetoric that it was? We, thank you. It was what we call deliberative. And I only say that because if you, if, you, if you begin to look at other books and you begin to say, well, I really want to really get in and understand better, it was deliberative. And there's something in deliberative rhetoric. Uh, actually, if you've ever taken a speech class or you've ever taken a writing class, the teacher is going to tell you that you, you need to work maybe on your exordium. Anybody ever remember that in class? None of you? Have any of you ever been to school, like 12th grade level? Any of you ever done that? Two of you have? Awesome. Any of you ever been outside of Georgia? Anybody ever? Um, it's called an exordium, and there's something that, that happens in your exordium. The teacher is going to tell you you've got to get the audience's attention. If you want somebody to read that thing, you better get their attention. You're boring them right up front. You've got to tell them what you're going to tell them, why you're going to tell them. You've got you to you shake them loose. Now, Paul has accomplished two of the um, purposes of an exordium or, or in, the, in the first paragraph, but now he's going to work on the third one. And, and that purpose is to get the attention of the uh, audience. And if this is something that's dangerous or serious... He will, you will begin with a blame or a rebuke. In other words, throw water in their face. So those of you who have already fallen asleep, I'm going to throw water in your face. All right? Look at that first paragraph. Do you see anything like that, a blame or a rebuke? What do you see in that first paragraph, somebody? Or, I'm sorry, that first, that first verse there. He's astonished? Yeah, what else there? What's he saying to him? That's kind of like, hey, man, we thought you were our friend. What's the matter with you? What's the, ma- what's the matter with you? What's the matter for you? Paul, he, he's, it's, it's, uh, it's a Roman uh, providence, right? Maybe there's a little Italiano going on. What's the matter for you? <laughs> right? He's coming after them. He's trying to get their attention. So let's, let's look at a few of the, uh, the words there. Look what he says there. I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting him. Well, that doesn't sound like he's trying to make friends and influence people, does it? (laughs) So the Galatians are at a crossroads, and Paul speaks passionately, trying to show them how to go forward in their Christian lives. And what might the danger be? Losing a friend could be. Anything else? Having the wrong gospel. gospel? I heard something else there. Jake? Being accursed forever. That's a, yeah, that's not a small one. Look over at chapter 5 real quick. I want you to look at one verse. As, as I've told you before, here in these first few verses, you'll, he'll, he'll refer to things that he'll go at length at later. Look at chapter 5. And look, look at verse number 4. You got that? You are... What's that next word if you have an ESV? Severed from... What if you were sitting in a counseling meeting with uh, one of the elders and they looked at you and said, you're severed from Christ? How would that hit you? Paul's working his way to that. You are, Carter, sorry about that, I didn't mean to catch you there. Carter, you are severed from Christ. 
Man, that would be tough news, wouldn't it? Gerald's about to get up and hit me for talking to this boy that way. You should see his face over there. What would my boy do? Can you imagine them saying that? You are severed. Look what he says. Look, look at verse 4 again. You are severed from Christ. So now he's going to qualify it. You who would be justified by the what? You are severed from Christ. You who would be justified from the, by the law. Let's continue the verse. You have, read those next four words real loud to me, everybody. You have fallen away from grace. Yeah, four words. Fallen away from grace. Fallen away from grace. So here's the word. You ready for a big word? It's not a real big word because you've heard it before. Apostasy. Apostasy. Here's the danger. He's throwing it right in their lap. Apostasy. What is apostasy? It's abandonment of the faith once held. That's pretty sobering. Now here's why it's sobering. Are we just reading this to gather, as Gerald mentioned, just to, gathering the fa- just to gather the facts of what happened in Galatia? No. Or are we, we reading this to have some hermeneutical application? We're reading this because we want to know how this applies to our lives. So the application for us then is, There are some amongst us for whom this could be true. There are some amongst us who are headed toward apostasy. The truth of the matter is, many of us have been serving Christ for many years. And those of us who have, have watched people walk away from the gospel of grace. Many of us have seen people distort the gospel and have seen our friends follow those distortions. Many of us have seen people walk away from this right here. The application is that, is that there are those among us whom we love, we care about, we think highly of, who really are hearing these distortions, and who really aren't grounded in the gospel and who will walk away. This is a serious thing to Paul. Paul has poured his life out. That's why later he's going he's gonna to have some words to say to Peter. Peter! You remember Peter, the guy who shadow? Yeah. And people are healed? Yeah. Barnabas, his right-hand man, where, where you read the story, it seems like he was Barnabas' right-hand man. He's going to accuse Barnabas. Now, neither will he accuse of being apostates, but the very implications of what they're doing are an offense to the gospel. So this idea of apostasy is not something we should just take lightly. It's not something that we should just see as out there. Apostasy is about something that happens in here. Uh, a few, maybe a couple months ago, Steve brought up something about apostasy and some names were listed and that's all fine and good. But I hope we didn't just look at those names and say, wow, look at that. I'll be honest with you, there's one particular name on there. Colton, you thought I said that name last week, if, if that helps. And uh, man, when I read that, when I hear about that, man, that breaks my heart. 
sons of well-known gospel preachers, men who fought the fight, sons that don't just quietly go off into the sunset, but make bold claims and statements about how the gospel is not true and that their parents are false teachers in proclaiming the gospel. Apostasy is not something we should take lightly, and Paul is not taking it lightly here. Notice he uses the word deserting. By saying deserting rather than deserted, there's a, there's a little bit of hope. So we're led to believe that the Galatians have not completely defected from the true gospel, but are rather in the process of doing so when Paul writes the letter. So the application for us then is that those of us, there are those of us in the process and we need to heed the warning. We need to heed the warning. We might need to draw back from the five hours a day on the video games, and we might need to really investigate whether we are truly in the faith. F. Meisner or Musner suggests that the language here that Paul is using echoes several Old Testament passages. Exodus 32, Brother Robert, if you could. He says that the Old Testament passages which speak of God's people, in fact, some of the first Israelites, they might, Paul, of course, being a, a, um, a man that understood the sweep of redemptive history, that is the big picture that it's very possible that Paul is drawing from these uh, those who abandoned the faith in the Old Testament. Robert, would you read Exodus 32, verse 8 for us, brother? They have turned aside quickly out of the way that, that I commanded them. This is the Lord speaking. They have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you... Up out of the land of Egypt. Can you imagine? These are the people that painted the blood on the doorpost. These are the people saw the mighty miracles in Egypt. These are the people who had the pillar of cloud by day and fire by night. These are the people that watched the Red Sea stand up and they walked across on dry ground. And as they were fleeing the Egyptians, they watched behind them as the the water closed in and just the, 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 uh, drowned all those men on the chariots. These are these people. And yet they said, Moses has been gone a month. Let's make us a golden calf and bow down to it. And then look what it says there in that same verse, the word hymn. That same verse, I'm astonished you are so quickly deserting him. Paul speaks here of leaving someone behind, the one who called you, he says, in exchange for something that is a different gospel. If you're still in Galatians 1, Paul tells us who the hymn is. If you look down at verse number 15, who called them to this gospel? Paul's saying it's not him. It's not Paul. Verse 15, but when he who had set me apart before I was born, who called me by His grace. When you and I depart from the gospel, who are we departing from? Him, Christ Himself. Do you realize that? Do you realize that when we depart from the gospel of grace, we are departing from the God of grace? We are departing from Christ Jesus Himself. 
We are departing from the King of Kings, the great I am. We are departing from the God of gods. In verse number 7, not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. Not that there is another gospel, he says. Notice Paul's confidence. I love this part. This is my favorite part, and I think that, I think that we ought to really focus in here on something. Notice Paul's go- a confidence in his earlier presentation of the gospel. You ever wonder how Paul got so much confidence in the gospel? It almost seems like Paul just showed up on the scene and was just blathering, doesn't it? But the point is, he did not set out to preach the gospel with an elementary or weak understanding of the gospel. How well do we know the gospel? Paul was theologically sound before he set out to preach the gospel. So sound that he could say these words, If anyone preaches anything different from what I preached the very first time I preached it, let them be accursed. It might be good to point out also that Paul was not a novice when he got to the Galatian churches as a missionary. Are we all aware of the fact that Paul spent over 10 years of local service in Cilicia before he was heading out? Are we all aware of that? Are we all aware of the fact that Paul preached there in Damascus and they were like, okay, man, you're causing a little bit of trouble. And he went to Jerusalem and they were like, okay, man. And they helped him out of there. And it says all the churches of Judea had rest. (laughs) They said, why don't you go home for a while? He spent over 10 years there before Barnabas went and said, Hey, man, come help me out. In many cases, Paul's experience was far more than today's young missionaries we send out to the field. Wouldn't you say? And then he says, Some who trouble you. Think about this. The Judaizers, you know what flag they flew? Well, they flew the Bible believers flag. Didn't they? Did they go around into the did they go around to the Galatians and say, We don't believe the Bible? We don't believe the Old Testament scriptures. No. They said, We believe those Old Testament scriptures. Listen to us. I'm not sure the we believe the Bible is good enough. What do you think? What I'm trying to say is it's an inside problem. It's not an outside problem. This is the inner working. This is where the danger lies. We believe the Scriptures. But as so often is the case, they took the Scripture out of context by either ignoring or misunderstanding the full sweep of biblical history. In particular, the new interprets the old. How's that? Does that make clear sense? Said another way, the entire Bible is related to the redemptive work of Christ, not Israel. The new interprets the old. Hindsight's 2020. I'll say this again the entire Bible is related to the redemptive work of Christ. The Judaizers wanted them to say, okay. The Judaizers are like, okay, you got Jesus? Good. Now let me tell you how you can work your way into the whole Israel thing. Let's get you in here now. Okay? Now that you got Jesus, 
Now we can get you circumcised, right? Now we got a list of things you can do. Oh, no, you can't do that. But you see my point, right? They wanted to work them into Israel. Let me tell you about Israel. Let me tell you about what all this. No, no, no. Paul's Paul's like, no, 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 no. This thing is all about Jesus Christ. This thing has always all been, always been about Jesus Christ. No doubt he would talk to him about Genesis chapter 3, verse number 15. Let me tell you what God said to them way back yonder. The heel of man, the seed of woman, the heel is heel, what bruised the head of the serpent. That's where it all goes back to. And he has done that. And that's how we read everything. The Judaizers probably wanted to go back to the book of Leviticus, and they said, okay, this has got nothing to do with Jesus here. Let's go back to the book of Numbers. This has got nothing to do with Jesus here. If you follow what I'm saying, say amen. amen. If I've confused the devil out of you, we won't embarrass you. Let me know. When error is wrapped in Scripture and presented within the wrong context, which is what theologians often call a hermeneutic, it can sound very compelling. And for this reason, Paul declared to the Ephesian elders in Acts 20, 27, I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Now, it's me, myself, and one brother that came up recently, and I got his point. But the point about that is, it's not that you've gotten through the whole Bible, because that's kind of silly that you teach the whole thing like that. But when Paul said, I've given you the whole counsel of God, he's going to give you the whole picture the whole full context. Ephesians 4.14, let me read that to you. So that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness, and in deceitful schemes. We've only got one scheme, folks. His name is Jesus. Amen? Amen. Paul didn't show up to the Galatians and go, okay, one, two, three, repeat after me. He didn't do that. No, this was a full-on gospel for Paul. Everything was Jesus. Everything's about the Lord Jesus. He's the culmination of it all. The entire Old Testament pictures the, the entire life of Christ. The culmination. He is the temple. We are His body. We are built and we are stones of this temple. We don't need sacrifices anymore. We offer sacrifices of praises to God. Look at verses 8 and 9. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again... If anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. So what we've seen so far, I'll share with you my little outline that I like. Try to give you some breathing room. Here in verse number 6. Here in verse number 6. Let's see, we're going to move from this distortion here. Again, because... uh, I want to stay with my friend Ann there. I see Paul's astonishment. 
he says, I'm astonished. This is verse number six. Paul says, I'm just, I'm, I'm blown away. I poured myself out. I'm blown away. Verse seven, not that there, not, he says, not that there's another one, but there's some who trouble you and distort the gospel. So he's working through this thing. Verse 7, I, I see him making this assessment. I think there's two S's there. Does that look right? And then I see all the way here at the end, 8 through 10, which is where we're moving. What's our letter today, um, Sesame Street? Thank you. I see his assertion. Now, he uses two phrases over and over again here in verses 8 and 9. He uses the word accursed. Accursed. Now, it's important to understand where this term originates. If you go to Joshua 6, brother. The term in Hebrew is the term harem or charon, however they say that, which simply means to ban or doom. In Joshua 6... That word is used five times in just two verses. Joshua 6, verses 17 and 18. Anybody other than Brother Robert who's about to read it to us here, anybody want to guess what happens in Joshua 6 where this verse is just, where the, the word is just compacted there? Joshua 6. What about this, this cursing that takes place? Joshua 6, anybody? There you go, Jericho. Jericho. Now imagine for a second, something's about to, awful about to happen in Jer- or later down the line, but he's laying it out there, something about a, a, a being accursed. And Paul's using the same idea here. Yes, sir. Um, the word wrong is basically uh, an Arabic word. Basically, it means forbidden, wrong. There's an Arabic insult called Ibn Haram, which means you are a son of a bat. It is the worst insults you can give to someone, basically saying they're cursed, they're going down the wrong path, and that they're possibly going to die soon. Something along those lines. It's very severe. You do not want to say that to anyone. And it's often said haram, which means forbidden. So when you're talking about bad topics, stuff that shouldn't be said, you say haram. Wow. Yeah, no, no, I appreciate it. What I read was haram too, and then I went and looked up some different things and so forth, and so I should have stuck with that. That's awesome. I mean, it's not awesome. <laughs> but it's awesome commentary that you're adding there. Yeah. Ban, doom. Yeah. And yet Paul uses it here. How many think Paul's a little passionate about this? He's wound up. Let me ask you something. If he's wound up, why aren't we wound up on this subject? If he's wound up and the world around us is going crazy, could it be that we've not been wound up about this subject? I'm not suggesting there's a cause and effect. Well, I guess I am. But, but I'm not, I'm not uh, being 100% about it. I'm just saying, is it possible that we've not been wound up about this subject? Maybe we're a little too easy on the subject. Paul wasn't easy on the subject. He put it here. God said, that's my word. And more than anything, at least in this environment, in this room, we need to shake one another, not literally, although there are times, but we need to be shaken on this issue. 
Go ahead, brother. Read that Joshua 6, 6 uh, verses 17 and 18. And the city and all that is within it shall be devoted to the Lord for destruction. Only Rahab the prostitute and all who were with her in her house shall live because she hid the messengers whom we sent. But keep yourselves from the things devoted to destruction, lest when you have devoted them you take any of the devoted things and make the camp of Israel a thing of destruction and bring trouble upon it. Destruction, destruction, destruction. And we know that somebody didn't take the advice. The idea here is of something which is set aside for destruction, in this case, destruction by God. Paul is not banning or cursing the agitators, but asking God to do it. Let him be accursed, an act against him. So I want to share one quick thing with you that I think is probably very important. In John chapter 7, I've pointed out a number of parallels in the book of John 7, 8, 9 in particular, with the Apostle Paul's dealing with these Judaizers and Jesus dealing with the Pharisees. In John 7, verse 49, listen to what the Pharisees say about those who are following Jesus. Listen to these words. But this crowd that does not, watch it, know the law is accursed. That's what the Pharisees say. They are haram. This crowd that does not know the law is accursed. Now listen to what Paul says here in verse 8. If anyone preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach, let him be accursed. So you have these law lovers on one hand. They say, if you don't know the law, you're accursed. Paul says, if you preach another gospel, you're accursed. Boy, isn't that amazing? Two contrary worldviews, two contrary religious views coming to a head. And then, of course, the other phrase that he uses twice is the phrase, a gospel contrary. Paul suggests, uh, or this suggests, that Paul had previously told his converts about this issue. In other words, it's more likely when he says the words, let's see, let's find it, verse 9, as we have said before... It's more likely that this refers to something Paul said when he had first visited them rather than referring back to verse number 8. In other words, he brought this up. That's amazing. He brought this up in his mission journey. He said, to the, them, he said this to them in his original visit. In other words, Paul thought this was a big deal. Paul, as a gospel preacher, as an evangelist, as an apostle, thought it was a big deal. He was very much aware of the fact that people would hear the gospel and then hear another gospel, a false gospel, a gospel that was not of the grace of God, and that they were right ground for being led astray. Steve had two great encounters uh, on uh, last Wednesday. And we think of that and we rejoice in that. But I'll be honest with you, I don't think right off the top of my head that they are right ground to be led astray. Just like that. Do you? And I don't. Well, hasten. Here are some, here are some contrary Gospels. Listen to what Jehovah's Witnesses uh, or the Jehovah Witness Watchtower says. People want to be saved. But how? Simply attending religious services? Salvation cannot be earned by attendance at meetings I like that. Or any other way. It is free. A gift of God. Wow, that sounds great, doesn't it? Keep reading. reading. (laughs) Yet Jehovah God does require efforts on our part. If we are to receive His gift of everlasting life. What are they? For one, vigorous exertion in His service. 
How about articles of faith from the Mormons? They go, on, they go to describe a most pernicious doctrine. What is it? That of justification by belief alone. Yet in spite of the plain word of God, dogmas of men have been promulgated to the effect that by faith alone may salvation be acquired. That's sola fide. They don't believe in by faith alone. How about this from the Catholic tract, Salvation According to Rome. A priest does not have to ask God to forgive your sins. Okay. The priest himself has power to do so in the name, in Christ's name. The penitent must atone for them by performance of good works. Stress is placed on the fact that any sin not confessed is not forgiven. But even after a penitent has received pardon, a large but unknown amount of punishment remains to be suffered in purgatory. That's dinner at my mother-in-law's. No. <laughs> Finally, introducing, this is from Introducing Unitarian Universalism. People are capable of infinite improvement. What happened to y'all? <laughs> when we raise ourselves on a higher moral and spiritual plane, through living the exalted precepts of our religion, we are achieving our own salvation. Man, I've... I feel like a politician reading. I want to go. (laughs) (laughs) Hurrah. Oh, oh, you're doing that to me. Okay. (laughs) Shandala. Last verse. For For am I now seeking the approval of man? Now, you notice you got two questions here. And if you read the New Testament, you know Paul's really good at this, right? He asks you these rhetorical questions, right? He wants you to. Okay. When you read a question, he's trying to get you to do something. He's trying to get you to think. Why? Because the Lord comes at an hour that you think not, not, okay? So he's trying to get you to... Anyway, all right. He's trying to get you to think, okay? It's one thing we struggle with. For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God, or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ, okay? A slave. He's a slave of Christ. By offering two rhetorical questions, Paul is focusing on the task of a rhetorist to persuade or to please. Now, there was a debate about rhetoric in in that how much was it, in fact, the art of persuasion and how much it degenerated into a mere attempt to please the audience. So you remember the first century, it was just a sport, right? Hey, here comes another speaker, like stand-up comedy, okay? Well, how much was it just that? So what is Paul attempting to accomplish here in verse 10? His goal is to make it clear that while he is in fact trying to persuade, he will not stoop to mere people pleasing. He is in fact a slave to Christ. Are you a slave to Christ? Just talking to Matthew here at the beginning. How much, man, I appreciate being in a church with him. I appreciate the fact that God put him here. I watched that video a couple weeks ago, him standing in front of that church that, Man, I like being around people like that. How about you? Amen. Man, we're slaves to Christ. You say, well, I just like to get along. Get along with who? Get along with Jesus? Who are we slaves to? Paul is saying as a slave to Christ, he's seeking to please Christ. He's not a slave to his audience, seeking to please them. Thus, what he says to the Galatians, he means. So the exordium here closes with the proper rhetorical signals about what sort of rhetoric the audience should expect. 
All right, let me just uh, try to wrap this up. For Paul, this is everything. The question's been asked, is Paul talking about justification or sanctification? Could the application be made to justification in chapter 1, sanctification in chapter 2? Absolutely. But I think the reason the debate, we debate the question and struggle with it is because Paul is on a different wavelength. Paul is all about the new creature. For Paul, it's, it, it's everything. Christ is everything. He's above all. Even our understanding. For Paul, even the Scripture's about Christ. Everything's about Christ. Remember, he says in Romans 8.32... That, that, that through Christ we have everything. So anything that infringes upon Christ means we lose something. And so for Paul, it, it, it's like a child. You wouldn't, you wouldn't say to you, you wouldn't let someone say or, or take something from your child. You say, well, they're still my child, and you're only taking a little bit from my child, but they're still my child. You'd say, no, you're not taking anything from my child. When you see what's happening in the greater culture and they, they, they go into these schools and they try to infringe upon us as parents and take and grandparents and they try to infringe upon that and steal the rights of our child. We don't want them taking anything from our child. They're our child. And that's why, of course, we can make an application to justification. Certainly, and he does. But we can take... That's why when Peter wouldn't eat with the Gentiles, Paul said, oh... These Gentiles can eat with you, Peter. You ate with the Jewish Christians. They had the benefit of hanging out with you when you hung out with Jesus. The Gentiles have the same benefits. They don't have to punch your ticket. They don't have to comb their hair a certain way. They don't have to keep some kind of uh, law that some Pharisees came up with or, or even eat, the, eat, the, uh, the, uh, eat like the Jews said in the Old Testament. They don't have to do anything to merit to be in your uh, presence, to eat with you. They are in Christ. They get all of it. You see that? And Paul's not budging on it. Our whole purpose is that. I can see Paul's frustration. I can see, can you imagine Paul saying, our whole purpose is that everything the prophets spoke about has come to pass. Can you see that? Paul is an expert in the Old Testament. He's saying it's all right here. The Messiah has set everything aright. We're at the dawning of a new age. And you guys act like our forefathers who wanted to go back to Egypt. Abraham saw Christ's day and rejoiced. David spoke of the resurrection according to Peter in Acts chapter 2. Nicodemus should have known about the new birth as a teacher of Israel according to Jesus in John chapter 3. Do you sense a compassionate rage running beneath this letter? I do. Someone has bewitched the Galatians and put themselves where the Spirit of God belongs. And the works of law where the faith in Christ belongs. The Scottish minister P.T. Forsyth said, The secret of the Lord is with those who have been broken by His cross and healed by His Spirit. Did Peter believe the gospel? Yeah. Did Peter believe Gentiles and Jews were saved by grace? Yeah. But he didn't stand up to those guys that came from James. And Paul would have none of it. Will some people that we call brother and sister forsake the gospel? 
They will, folks. Are there false gospels? Are there false teachers? Are there some issues worth being passionate about? God's new covenant name for you and I is Father. Why is that important? Because if you don't know God as Father, and you don't know Jesus as King and constant companion, then I refer you back to verse 3. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave Himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of God, will of our God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. This message was produced by the New Testament Reformation Fellowship, reforming today's church with New Testament church practices. Permission is hereby granted for you to reproduce this message. You can find us on the web at www.ntrf.org. May God bless you as you seek to follow Him in complete obedience to His Word. May your faith in the Lord Jesus be strengthened and your daily walk with Him deepened.